on page 832 in the Pew Bibles, Daniel chapter 1. If you are a student, I hope you're enjoying your time so far in Edinburgh. But whether you are a student or not, I invite you this morning to imagine with me what it would be like being a student in Babylon. This was a situation for Daniel and his friends, and we read about it in verse 1 of Daniel 1. This is the word of God for us today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any uh, physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, 
He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the Star Trek characters, the Borg. Who are the Borg? Well, the Borg are a fictitious uh, group of cyborgs. And the Borg's chief uh, objective, their main aim, is to assimilate every other race, every other culture, and every other civilization. Uh, Their goal is not so much merely to conquer the opposition, uh, so much as it is to conform the opposition and thus conquer them. Once you are captured by uh, the Borg, uh, you are assimilated. Uh, You are made to become just like them. And by the way, if you think uh, you can hold off on this stuff, resistance is futile. Well, in some respects, the Babylonians were not altogether different from the Borg. This mighty superpower, Babylon, this mighty army of the ancient Near East, also had as their objective to assimilate their foes. I think not so much Daleks exterminate, though they did a fair bit of that, But at least at this juncture in their history, think Borg, assimilate. And so when Babylon would uh, take over a a nation, such as the tiny little nation of Judah in verse 1, they understood that military victory wasn't enough for them to truly conquer a nation. It had to be fully conformed to Babylon's culture, Babylon's religion, and Babylon's way of thinking. Now, it is this Borg-like attempt uh, that we find in the first section of our story of Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. We could well entitle, Babylon assimilates. See, here's the thing about Babylon. Babylon is always trying to make us like it. In the New Testament, I guess the parallel to Babylon would be the world. Not meaning so much the physical world, the globe, but that world which is the kingdom of this world. That world which is the system of evil that opposes God and opposes the kingdom of God. And what we have to understand about this world, this Babylon-type system, is that its aim is always the same. To assimilate us to squeeze us into its mold. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Why did Paul say that? Well, because the world is always trying to conform you. The world is always trying to squeeze you to become like it. So that you are both in the world... And of the world. So that you are indistinct from those around you. And therefore ineffective. Now what we sometimes fail to realize is that this is a very organized attempt. 
Look at verses 3 to 5 in the text before you. Uh, The king of Babylon establishes a university in the city of Babylon. It's a training college to prepare students from a Judean background to serve in the king's court to serve the king. He even appoints a course leader. The man's name is Ashpenaz. And in verses 3 and 4, he gives him the entry requirements for the course. He says that entrants must be from a Jewish background. They must be male. Uh, They must have the, the best of pedigree from royal families or nobility. They must have the best appearance. And they must also have the best minds. In other words, the king of Babylon is targeting the cream of the crop. He's targeting the rising, upcoming stars, as it were, of the next generation of Judah. I'm sure it is indeed still the strategy of Satan today. It's probably one of the reasons why the universities are such a target for Christians who go there. The king thinks to himself, well, if I can just assimilate these rising stars, if I can just take for myself the cream of the crop, then surely the rest of the culture will follow suit. And so he brings them into this uh, three-year training college, including Daniel and the three of his friends. And after enrollment, the classes begin. And less than subtly, the assimilation begins. Now, notice this with me, how this assimilation happens. I think one of the reasons that we have this story in Daniel chapter 1 is to show us some of the tactics of assimilation. You know, there are tactics of assimilation that the world uses. Here's the first. Here's the first way the world tries to squeeze us into its mold. First of all, by isolating us. This is really from the context. These are a group of young men. They were probably only 15 years of age. And they were isolated from their homeland. They were 500 miles from the city of Jerusalem. They were isolated also from their parents. And they were isolated, more importantly, from their religious heritage. They obviously couldn't go back to the temple, to temple worship. And then to compound this sense of of alienation and isolation, and the Babylonians have a masterstroke, uh, we notice. Uh, because uh, you notice that they are given new names, Babylonian names. Their Jewish names are removed, uh, names which in fact reference the God of Israel, and they're given Babylonian replacement names which reflect the Babylonian gods. And you see the tactic, if we cut them off completely from their religious moorings, then soon they will adopt another religion. Soon they will just blend in with Babylon and all that it stands for. Just forget about everything you've ever been taught and everything you ever believe. That's the tactic of isolation. And if you are a student, uh, let me say you are particularly vulnerable to this tactic. Because obviously you are living away from home. Well, most of you anyway. Away from parents. Uh, Away maybe from many of your Christian friends that you grew up with. 
And Babylon will seek, now in this vulnerable position, to completely cut you off from Zion altogether. Completely cut you off from Christian fellowship. And that's why settling down into a church fellowship is so important. It's not only good for us here at Charlotte Chapel, and we're delighted that you're here, but it is good for you and your spiritual security. That's such a powerful image James used last Sunday night, if you missed it. He said that being a Christian detached from a church is like being a soldier who would rather walk alongside the armoured vehicle then jump inside for protection. If you're a Christian and you're cut loose of a church, you're immensely vulnerable. Babylon assimilates us by isolating us firstly, secondly, by educating us. Having cut them off from the old influences, they are now pummeled, these students, with a whole new set of ideas. They were, verse 4, to be taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, Sinclair Ferguson uh, helpfully comments here something we might miss in this. He says, quote, The aim of this course was not merely academic. We need to understand this. It was to retrain their minds to think as Babylonians rather than Israelites. They weren't simply being taught about Babylonianism. They were being taught to think as Babylonians. This was instruction for integration. Uh, This was assimilation through education to the Babylonian worldview. And by the way, we need to recognize this even in our studies. You know, as we take courses at so-called secular uh, institutions that have no religious... um, persuasion at all, and and are are completely objective. It's often said of uh, Christian teachers and preachers that we have presuppositions, and we have agendas, and we have a worldview that's behind what we teach. It's absolutely true. Of course we do. But what we also need to realize is that our lecturer that stands behind his lectern on a Monday morning also has his presuppositions. He also has his worldview. And very often it's not merely a subject that's being taught, but it's in fact an entire worldview that is secular materialism or atheism. And if you hear nothing but this worldview, class after class after class, well, maybe you start to believe it. And so it's through isolation, it's through education, uh, we're really beginning to, to, to fit into this new culture now. But notice there's a third tactic of assimilation by wooing us. Isolating us, educating us, but then here comes, you know, the real temptation, wooing us. If Babylon can't win us over to its team by the intellectual route, it will head south and it will aim for our appetites. It will aim for our stomachs. And as has been said already, this is a particular uh, soft spot for students, maybe. You know, we use the same tactic for student lunches, right? Just to get you along, uh, because we think if we can feed your stomach, maybe we can feed your soul. Unfortunately, the kingdom of darkness uses the same tactic. And sometimes, uh, here's the other problem, 
Babylon seems to set an even better table than we do. Its delicacy seems so attractive. I mean, look at verse 5. Wouldn't you eat this? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. You can almost sense the grandeur of this. This is royal delicacies. This is the best restaurant in the whole of Babylon. And they can get to eat from the table. What a seduction. I think the unspoken promise here was, boys, if you play your cards right, you'll get to eat from this table for the rest of your lives. Oh, it's Babylon at its best and at its worst. And this is what it does. This is what the world does. It promises you pleasure at a price. Interesting, isn't it? In the wilderness temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that the devil tempts Jesus with? You would think he would come up with something better than this, wouldn't you? But he tempts him just with bread. He appeals to the base pleasures. And if you're starving, if you've been not eating anything as Jesus was for 40 days, that seems very appealing. And then he presents before him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, not only can you eat from the king's table, but you can have all the kings under your domain. Forget about the U.S. presidency and who might win that race. You can be ruler over all the presidents and kings in all of the world. This is what the world does. It promises us things. It says to us, if you just fit in, I guarantee you'll climb the ladder in your career quicker. And you'll be part of the in crowd longer. And you'll have better food on the table, at least metaphorically speaking. And, and by the way, there's just one condition. You have to totally conform to be like us. One of the tragedies as we think about this is just how close it hits to home. For some of us, maybe for all of us. Maybe you're here this morning and you are taking freely what the world offers you at the cost of your Christian distinctiveness. And you're completely indistinct from the world around you. While others may surmise that you're a Christian by your attendance this morning, if they were to spot you from Monday to Saturday in all the various environments in which you find yourself, they probably couldn't tell you were a Christian. And I'm sure it's such a temptation for all of us, even if we're not blending in like a chameleon, just to give inch by inch more of ourselves to the world. And the challenge of God's word to us this morning is to stop. Stop doing it. Draw a line in the sand. And this brings us to the second point and the second phase in our story. See, while in the, in the first part, Babylon assimilates, notice that in the second section, God's kingdom, God's empire strikes back. I love this part of the story. Babylon assimilates, but secondly, Daniel deviates. This one man draws a line in the sand against this mighty superpower and he says no more. Now, of course, I'm not forgetting in this that he, he had three uh, friends coming with him. Uh, but you'll notice yourself as you look to the, uh, to the text, verses 8 to 14, that it is Daniel who is brought to the front of the pack. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Daniel is taking a leadership role. 
Daniel is showing the influence that one can have on many other people. And Daniel eventually comes to a point where he says, enough is enough. I need to stop compromising somewhere. Now, this assimilation more, and no more, is uh, maybe something of a strange one as we look at it initially. The issue he chooses might be one that you can't figure out as you first of all look at it. He resolved, verse 8, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, why did Daniel have a problem with the food and wine from the king's table? I mean, what was the, what was the issue that lay behind this as the watershed? I'm sorry to tell you this morning, we, we don't know for sure. Uh, perhaps, uh, some suggest, Daniel was concerned about Jewish food laws, kosher food. Or, or maybe it was that this food had been ritually offered, as it was in these days, in these pagan nations, to idols before it was served. And so he, they were saying, we cannot eat food offered to idols. Uh, perhaps it may have been that it was neither kosher foods nor food, uh, foods offered to idols, but it was simply the recognition that this food and wine from the king's table was attempting to seduce them to assimilate into Babylonian culture. Well, all three views have their pros and also their problems. We can't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. All we know for sure is that there was some issue of principle at stake for Daniel. All we know is that there was something that he simply could not compromise on. And I trust that we, too, have such principles. See, if you're going to be a Daniel in your day and generation, you know, we've sung this song about, I want to serve the purpose of God. It sounds so heroic and wonderful, doesn't it? But if we're going to be men and women of God like that, we're going to have to learn to be pretty unpopular sometimes. We're going to have to learn to say the word no fairly often. Now, I don't mean... uh, trying to be different for different sake. You know, that kind of Christian is not really distinctive. They're just annoying. Right? You know, the me against everything Christian. It's not a positive testimony for the gospel to be a no person. We do live in the world. There are some things where God's word is not necessarily clear. And yet, as we live in the world, we must be very careful that we don't become of the world. And there will be times when the world will spread his his glorious table before us and we're going to have to deviate from the norm. We're going to have to say, well, I can be a fellow student in your class and I can be a friend beyond the class, but I cannot engage with you in this or in that. Cannot do it. Let me mention just one obvious area. And there's a link to this in the text, so I'll I'll go this way with it. The issue of drunkenness. I mean, there's wine mentioned here. Alcohol uh, is not forbidden in the Bible. Some people choose not to drink it because of reasons of addiction or just because they're free in Christ and they don't want to drink it. That's absolutely fine. But there is no, as far as I can tell, explicit bar on drinking any alcohol. However, there is certainly a bar on drunkenness. I mean, that is not permitted very clearly in Old and New Testament. 
And so you've run into a bit of a problem here, haven't you? Because while alcohol is, uh, or drunkenness is forbidden in the Bible, it is certainly not only permissible, but it is fully acceptable and encouraged in our culture. And so when you're invited out to the party or to the birthday celebration, the expectation often is, especially for students, that you will get drunk. Or maybe the work party. That's sometimes what it's like, isn't it? And it's not just the drunkenness, it's all that comes with it in terms of the frivolous follow-on. You know, we have a Daniel decision to make at these times. Assimilate or deviate. Frankly, and I'm maybe speaking to some of the younger-ish people here this morning, frankly, our Facebook pages and our Bible pages should look a bit different from our non-Christian friends. You know, ours shouldn't have pictures of us sprawled around on nightclub floors. People say, well, it was just, you know, it's just evangelism. Well, I'm not sure you're in the best condition to be speaking out for Jesus when you're out your skull. How much better to take a stand on these issues? How much better to, to be resolved about them? Notice the resolution Daniel makes. Verse 8. Daniel resolved. Daniel didn't reason as we sometimes do. Well, perhaps this is wrong. Maybe it is. But I'll, I'll wait until the situation arises. I'll wait till the table spread. And then I'll see what I'll decide. Daniel was wiser than that. He knew that the temptation might be too great when the banquet was sitting before him. And so in the cold light of day, he resolves. He makes a prior and definite decision not to partake of these delicacies. It's not a bad pattern to follow, is it? And then notice thirdly, the courteousness he maintains, which I think is a very important caveat to this. See, Daniel's resolution did not lead to him being obnoxious. I mean, think about this. He's already decided he's not going to eat the food and drink the wine. He's already decided that. He's decided to follow Jesus. It's no turning back, as we would put it in our terms. And yet, he goes to the course leader and he asks for permission not to eat the food and drink the wine. He says, would you let me not do it? He has a conviction, but he's also courteous. In in verse 12, uh, he later goes to the guard and he's equally humble with him. And he describes himself and his colleagues as servants. See, we don't need to be haughty to be holy. We can say our nose nicely. Now, it doesn't mean that just because we're polite about it, everyone's going to accept our convictions. We all know that will not be always the case. In fact, you'll notice that the course leader, whom Daniel first asked for permission, refuses. Now, he says, this would be a bad idea for my, keeping my head on my shoulders. And I guess Daniel could have just given up at this point. I mean, wouldn't you? He is facing up to a totalitarian regime. What can you do? I've tried. I've asked. I gave it my best shot. Said no. But notice, uh, finally and fourthly here, the persistence Daniel displays. Daniel doesn't get up. Give up. Verses 9 to 14. What dogged audacity. 
And he says to himself, well, you know, if the course leader won't say yes, I'll go to the guard. Because the guard is actually my line manager. And the guard's actually the one that brings the food and the wine directly to me. And so he goes to him and he says, I've got this great idea. And he's much more subtle this time. He's much more clever, Daniel. He doesn't demand a long-term abstention. No, he only says, give me a short-term test. Ten days, give us nothing but vegetables and water. And it's not so long that even if we decline, we'll be looking terrible. It's only ten days. And so if you begin to see us faring a little worse, you can put us straight back on the good stuff. And so the guard, realizing that there's no danger for him, it's hardly a gamble, he agrees to it. And yet, of course, it is for Daniel something of a step of faith. A step of faith that God will intervene, that God will somehow bless his decision. And maybe, I don't know, was he wondering to himself, would Babylon be proved right? You know, that that living for God is about as exciting as living, you know, choosing Brussels sprouts over champagne and caviar. That's what the world thinks. It's foolish. And yet we're about to see that throughout the scripture, the principle is proved. Those who honor me, says the Lord, I will honor. And this leads to the, the finale of our story. Very briefly, notice with me. God vindicates. What an amazing way for the story to end. Babylon assimilates, it attempts to at least. Daniel deviates. And now God, who has been somewhat in the background so far in the story, comes to the forefront and he vindicates Daniel's resolve. He does so in at least two areas. First of all, he vindicates their diet. In verse 15, at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier And better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. It wasn't merely that they didn't look any worse. Note that. They actually looked better. While it's not explicitly stated in the text, this could be down to no one else but God. God who blesses our food to our bodies. Which is why we give thanks for our food, even in a culture where we have so much. Because we need God to bless the food to our digestion and to our profit. And so here, these veggies, they work wonderful results and they're looking like a million bucks at the end of the process. God vindicates their diet. And then notice, secondly, God vindicates them in another way because he vindicates their studies also. Verse 17 says that these four young men, uh, to them, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. God gave them it. It's not to say that they weren't naturally intelligent. They obviously were to get into the course. And it's neither to say that they didn't work hard. I mean, they would have been made to work hard, surely, by the course leader. But it is to attribute their ultimate success to God in their studies. And so the final exam comes, as they eventually do. And in these days, the final exam, it wasn't a written Exam, it was an oral exam. I mean, it makes sense. You were going into the king's service, and so the final test was that you would be brought in to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he would simply have a purely pressurized conversation with you. He would ask you questions. He would test your education. He would see whether he liked you. 
And if the king decided you were in, you were in. And so they're brought in, verse 19. And when the king talked with them, he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They pass with flying colors. In fact, they're just so clever uh, that verse 20 adds, these 18-year-olds now were in fact more bright, more smart than all the magicians and enchanters of the whole kingdom. Now that can be nothing other than God richly vindicating and blessing these young men. It's a reminder to us that when we make the hard choices, when we at times make the non-compromises, God will bless us richly. Those that honour me, I will honour. I think, in some ways, is the main message of Daniel chapter 1. I wonder then, whether you're honouring the Lord in the way that you live. Whether it's at university, whether it's at work, whether it's in retirement, wherever it is. Are you making compromises to the world? You know, as I, as I conclude, and I have to say, in studying this passage, I thought it would be very exciting to look at this this morning. By the time I got to the middle of the week, I was feeling slightly depressed. Uh, because the thought actually struck me, well, you know, as I look to my life, I feel very convicted about the compromises I make. The fact is this morning that each and every one of us make compromises. So what hope is there for us? I mean, even uh, Daniel himself in this story arguably makes some compromises. Maybe he should have rejected the Babylonian names as well as the Babylonian food. So it's pretty depressing, isn't it, when you're told don't compromise and yet you know you compromise. Well, let me just finish with the hope this morning. And it is this, that as we come to the New Testament, you know, there is a true and greater and better Daniel. There is one who was not only offered food at the king's table, but he was offered all the pleasures of the world by Satan, the king of this world, and he refused them. He wouldn't even eat a slice of bread. This Daniel, Jesus Christ, was the only human being in all of history who lived both in the world and yet was never of the world. He lived among sinners and yet he himself never became sin. Yet breathtakingly on a cross, the Bible says Jesus became sin for us. Jesus bore the wrath for every inch you and I creep over the line of compromise. He bore God's wrath for our assimilation to Babylon, every compromise. And so this morning, and as I reflected on that from Thursday of this week, on how this text related to Christ, I can say to you, you can leave this place with great hope. You can turn to Jesus Christ from your sinful compromises. And you can put your full trust in His unremitting righteousness, in His uncompromising, undefiled stance against worldliness. Being a student in Babylon, folks, is going to take more than our resolve. It's going to take the cross of Jesus Christ to bear our compromises, to bear our sins. Let us pray together. Father, as we 
think about Daniel this morning. Thank you for the challenge. Uh, Thank you for the exhortation to live in the world, but not to be of the world. Thank you for the example of Daniel. But Lord, thank you most of all for that true and greater and infinitely better Daniel, the Lord Jesus, who was completely spotless, even though he rubbed shoulders with the worst in the world. Help us to come to him this morning to forgive us of our sins and help us to put our whole trust in him. And may may the Lord Jesus be our ultimate inspiration too as we seek to live distinctively in our Babylon. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.